1: So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK.
2: We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, I Gary? I wonder. I mm, think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I know, did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of the Secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up with a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's u Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So, Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon,
1: and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to, just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, with
2: all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard. Stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Echoes, obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you um, know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum.
1: was <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now, and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk.
2: And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, The Set the Control Tour. Hi, Guy. Hello, Gary. Big one today. Well, a big catalogue. I mean,
1: Sparks have, I think, we, we were just wondering how many albums has it been, 24, Sp- 25?
2: 20- Six I think it might be 26, I seem to think oh, there's uh, they' say something about 25 albums in there because they d- and they did that ridiculous thing didn't they, where they played every album at a gig, and, and yep. they did a series of gigs that in Islington p- in Is- yes, that poor band they did a different
1: al- in fact, I would ask them about this surely they did they did a different one of their albums in chronological order every single night. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it, that's right. How can you learn that stuff? Well, there was an interview with the drummer in the film and he says the thing is you spend a week learning an album and then you've got it. And then the next week you earn the next album, but then you've lost the one before. <laughs>
1: wow. Yeah. I mean, that's it is some catalogue. And of course, there are sort of great moments in this catalogue.
2: You know, I mean, Kimono My House. Come on. You know, we're one weird. of those. So we all so remember that. You know that was such a mass, you know, and it's we, yeah. and they were kind. Of, I think they've got that sort of the same thing as um, as Hendrix, where kind of we think they're ours. Yeah, of course. Well, I noticed on the latest album, he
1: sings, he says the word Q and not "line." I mean, they're so anglophile in that. But they were. I mean, they spent a lot of time in the UK during the glam rock period, and and were embraced by by the UK in a way that their home country didn't. embrace. That's right. Them. Yeah, and and. But the other key moment we'll have to talk about, of course, is, um, you know, number one song in heaven. Of course. The Giorgio Moroder moment.
2: And actually it's only now going back and looking in retrospect and realizing, actually, that was way more key and important and ahead of the curve than we perhaps thought at the time. Well, no, I, 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 you know, I hate to say I
1: was at the Blitz Club again <laughs> and how important that scene was. That's fair but, enough. But, but Rusty Egan played that song That's in right, the Blitz yeah. Club, and everybody just went, This is it. This band, now, I mean, it influenced us when we wrote our first uh, album. When I was writing the first album and we were recording it, it was, Why did I buy a synthesizer? Well, I mean, Sparks are one of the reasons.
2: Yeah. And there's also, we don't want to do too much because it seems they have all these pivotal points that keep happening. There's actually only one real fallow period, which is from like 1990 to 94. And then they're back again with a big one. You know, um, when do I get to sing my way? Which is such a brilliant statement. Yeah, Um, yeah,
1: yeah. And, you know, and embraced by so many bands, you know, everything from The Killers and and, uh, Franz Ferdinand and Duran Duran and of course, you know, us and you know, Depeche Mode. I mean, but also their foray into making films as well. Oh. We'll have to talk about
2: that. Annette. Annette, which is fab- a fabulous film, I must say. I loved it. But again, this goes back to, they were going to do a film with Jacques Tati originally. Yes, of course, because
1: they grew up wanting to be filmmakers. That's right. And and their story is so touching with their father. We'll get onto that, who died young, and, um, who took them to to the movies. Uh, Guy... This is also the first time we're gonna be interviewing two people at once.
2: I know, I'm very afraid.
1: I, I am, because this town ain't big enough for the both of us. Da 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 da. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it ain't me who's gonna leave. Let's get them on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours.
3: Okay guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure.
2: I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of
4: course I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down
2: in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I've been sitting in the back of the car coming into London, they're brilliant. That
3: caused a big problem in the band actually. I was having too much fun
2: Thank you guys for still being around Still making music, still being into it And
3: doing this podcast it, it's, uh, it's fabulous
1: Well I get the feeling that us three should go for a bite
3: That's what I think I'm in a band now, <laughs> it's
1: called Roxy Music
3: You know this thing about the
1: 10,000 hours of experience oh, yeah, yeah, it's To, it's to really get good at good. something When we recorded Arnold Lane We'd done about 50 hours
3: The Rock Hunters Podcast With Gary Kemp and Guy
1: Pratt
2: Keep on rocking! We've got Russell. Oh, hi Hello. Russell. Hello
1: Russell. Hi there. Oh, so good to see
5: you. Thank you. Yeah, good to good to, to meet and see <laughs> you as well, you guys. Yeah, where's your brother? Is he? Uh, got a... He's coming soon. He's in his own room,
1: <laughs> uh,
5: <laughs> somewhere in this hotel. So
2: here comes Ron. Here
1: comes, comes
5: Ron.
2: Ron. Yay, Ron. Yeah, how are you? Doing? Russell and Ron, this is and, fantastic. Uh, are you both in different rooms at the same hotel?
4: Oh, what what a question!
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, because that's how we used yes. to do the podcast when we were on tour. So it's
5: quite funny. Things, okay, fl- things are things are going really well for Sparks. We can <laughs> afford two separate rooms. <laughs>
2: uh, Finally,
5: brilliant. I Finally,
1: mean, I, I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, your your journey is unbelievable. How you know we look back over so many albums, and the quality of all of them is phenomenal. I mean, this latest record to me sounds like you could have made it in 1970s it's as good as anything you've ever done
4: we really appreciate that i mean we you know we feel an obligation to kind of uh push ourselves as far as we can go and not coast and you know especially now because we're getting a lot of new fans and people are that are kind of just joining now they they kind of think sometimes that we're a new band when they hear us so you want to you want to do something that isn't just a rehash of what you've done in the past.
2: Well, the fact that, I mean, you know, that girl's crying in her latte, that you've managed to maintain for so long this fantastically arch ironic sort of style of lyric writing, which is, you've never lost, you've never lost that sort of edge to
5: it, which is, you know, which is is magnificent. You know, we think that just, um, you know, having the consistency of the world that, that Sparks has kind of created that, that universe that you can't kind of uh, veer off course ever. I mean, we we probably couldn't veer off course very well either. But uh, but we we kind of take pride in that that the you know the universe is kind of intact, and people that you know are attracted to sparks kind of appreciate and know sort of what that universe is, and they. They like to know that there'll be a song like uh, "The Girl's Crying in Her Latte." But that doesn't make <laughs> it any—it doesn't
1: make it any easier to to imagine. I mean, the, you're but you're right. That universe. I mean, you can trace a song like "Elevator." You know, you could trace that back to "Computer Girl." You, you know, dealing with inanimate objects that somehow are foxing you or making you fall in love. I mean,
4: that's, no, that's you're, a great connection. You're, you're right. Uh, you know, you in a certain way. You know, we we try to push things as far as you you can but but also there's a sensibility that we can't escape from and uh you know at this point we're we're proud of that sensibility even if it means that there is an expectation that always is there for what we're doing.
2: I think that's a lot to do with why because I'm wondering because you're in the UK on tour at the moment and I'm wondering if that hope if that feels like a sort of homecoming because it was you know you were your, your original success came over here. And and as I was saying to Gary earlier, you, it's kind of like Hendrix, we think of you as ours. And it's, it, and a lot of that is because your lyrics were, there was something so, you know, when when um, when This Town Ain't Big Enough, when you first broke here, the only person I would say who was doing anything sort of similar in terms of that arch ironic thing was Brian Ferry but even guy even guy lyrically in the new al- album you know in a, a a
5: love story
1: you know you sing q <laughs> instead of line.
5: <laughs> yeah well it, i guess it 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 uh, seeped in all of the uh, our anglophile ness uh you no know, and it, i mean it was the uk that first really embraced sparks in a big way we had had two albums out in the states before we transplanted Here, um, the ones first one produced by Todd Rundgren and stuff. And, and, you know, and then we kind of, we got that offer from Island Records to come here. And, and so it really was the UK, um, sensibility that, that kind of, you know, that, that found something really special in what we were doing in a, in a, in a bigger sort of way than we were able to achieve in the States. And so, um, it's just been that. Yeah. And when you mentioned about coming back here now for playing, it is like homecoming in a, in a certain way. And just for us, it's even gotten more exciting because the, we're doing two nights at Royal Albert Hall. And for us, you know, being anglophiles from way back, you know, Royal Albert Hall means something special, extra special and knowing where we get to play there this time. And, Things are kind of on this upswing now. It's it's really satisfying, and we you know we owe a lot to 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 Britain that's kind of really uh, embraced the band. I don't want to look back too soon
1: because I just want to. I also want to sort of talk about this new album a little bit more because uh, having Kate Blanchett on the video it was such a coup. I mean, what what an what an incredible performance from her as well. Uh, how did that happen?
5: We were at the Cesar Awards in Paris a year and a half ago. Those are sort of the Equivalent of the BAFTA Awards or the, or the Academy Awards in the States. Uh, we had been nominated for the film music and for the film that we wrote called Annette that was starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Um, and so we were there to for the nomination, which we fortunately were lucky enough to win best music for that film. And before the show, Started, uh, there was this little knock on our dressing room door, and this woman who looked an awful lot like Kate Blanchett uh, <laughs> was there. And she said, Hello, I'm Kate Blanchett. And we said, Oh my God, you look awful lot like Kate Blanchett. <laughs> and um, we kind of fell on the floor because, uh, you know, and then she introduced herself by saying that she's been a Sparks fan forever since she's been growing up she was growing up in Australia and all of that. And we were just so, so uh, just uh, amazed because we we really love her as an actress. Think she's just, you know, an amazing actress. And for her to even know who Sparks is, let alone say she's a fan of the band, we were just like, oh, my God. So anyway, we kept in touch with her. And it came time to do the video for Girls Crying a in a team We didn't really have a strong idea of how to represent that. Um, so we didn't want to do something that was completely literal, so I said, "Kate Blanchett, uh, let's contact her, and surely she'll uh, she'll save save the day." So you'd swap so, numbers? Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. We we gave her the song, and she said, "I love this song." She said, uh, "It's something I don't know. When I listen to it, I don't know whether I'm supposed to laugh or I'm supposed to cry when I when I hear it." But I, I love it, and that was a really nice reaction too. We thought, and so we said just do anything you want to do in the video. You know, she could just stand there and stare at the camera and it would have been enough for us. But uh, she concocted that whole dance routine that, that's in it all on her own. And she wanted – that's what she, how she wanted to represent herself in the song mm-hmm. and uh, wearing her headphones and her thick glasses and all that sort of thing. And and uh, the great suit have been more an, pleased. Could I
2: just – actually, because you, you were talking about Annette there, which uh, I just want to say – is a brilliant film and in fact we love each other so much has become a catchphrase around our house between me and my missus so that oh, nice. but also that opening number um if we should start is it's probably the most sparks thing i've ever seen yeah. it's it sums Incredible. sums you up so well oh,
5: thanks yeah we that was a you know it was a really great experience we had tried for ever to get a movie musical off the ground and it's just you know it's it's difficult and finally the all the pieces fit together and we had met with a met up with this really great director French director Leos Carax and he was a fan of the band it turned out and we had given him this project that we had completed called Annette that we thought was maybe going to be Sparks new album at that time that we would have like a just a narrative story and then he after listening to it he said i'd really like to direct this as my next film and so we were we were happily uh surprised that he suggested that and then uh and uh yeah so it it it, it couldn't have been uh better the whole, the, and, that, the whole and that's
2: third time lucky isn't it because you've certainly been i mean i just the, i mean just because you've had there's been two film projects before haven't they yeah. but the very fact that somewhere in your CV you can actually have the name Jacques Tati is beyond any <laughs> no, no, level of incredible, you know.
4: <laughs> no, we're, I mean, obviously we were distraught when that project didn't actually happen. We had met with Jacques Tati, the, the great French, I, mean, uh, I guess you would call him comedy, but it's a, it's a very strange kind of comedy. But uh, It's it,
2: existential sort no, of exactly. observation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah no, exactly. Yeah, and,
4: yeah. and so... So to to meet with him was just like, just such an exhilarating uh, experience, obviously disappointing that that didn't happen. It was in the middle 70s. It was a film that was to be called Confusion and just for a variety of reasons, it didn't happen. And then in the early 90s, we had another hopeful movie project that uh, Tim Burton was supposed to direct called My The Psychic Girl based on a Japanese manga. And you know we worked on that for about four years, but uh, you know there's all these reasons. You, sometimes you can't even pinpoint where it went wrong, but it just didn't happen. So for for this time, to actually have a music movie musical made, and you know a really uncompromising one, we yeah we, we, you know it was it was just and a stellar you know, cast. I mean, you know. no, no. I mean that was you know to hear, you know just to ha- to kind of be you know in the opening scene you mentioned i mean we're we're not exactly uh, co-stars in the film but to have like even a cameo with with adam driver and, and marion Cotillard is like kind of you know wish fulfilled the lifetime wish fulfilled
1: i love that that song we we love each other so much and what i think i love i i enjoy about it is how the repetitiveness of that phrase somehow turns the the phrase on its head it becomes kind of meaningless or darker as you repeat it and repeat it. It's a trick you use in, in quite a few of your songs, yeah. isn't it?
4: Yeah. Reiki and wow, you guys use big words. It? <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, yeah. but yeah. sometimes, you know, you can take a really banal expression, like even my baby's taking me home in a song, you know, that could be just something you kind of uh, pass through. But when a when a phrase is repeated and then, altering the musical setting that it's in, it, it becomes kind of this, it, the the meaning kind of changes and, and becomes something else. And so even though a lot of our songs are really wordy, the, we also like to use the opposite approach and, and be completely kind of minimal as far as.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's, what's interesting about you finally ending up making a movie is that you sort of started that way. Your inspiration was the movies. I mean, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, you know, was, was exactly, you know, you, kids growing up with yeah. plenty of Westerns. Uh, and there's, it's really touching when, it, it, in um, Edgar's documentary, I found it very moving, the story of your upbringing. Um, this dad, who I have to say, was one of the coolest dressers how, I've how ever about seen. It? No. And, <laughs> oh, oh my no. God. I mean, Way ahead of the curve. I mean, he would be an icon in (laughs) Japan right now, right? Wearing those clothes. And him taking you to see movies, you two brothers, and then he he dying so young, and you gathering around your, your, your mom. And it seems to me that your bond as brothers, which is so incredible, came out of that moment of your dad leaving so early and all of what he'd given you before he left.
5: No, it's, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really true. And, um, you know, I think just not anything so specific, but just being in an environment where there's somebody doing something creative and in in the arts. And even though he split his time between doing commercial, uh, commercial artwork for a newspaper, but then the other half of the time he was uh, a really great painter, uh, a fine artist. And so, I think maybe just being growing up in that sort of environment, um, something must have seeped into our bones and, uh, you know, steered us in the right direction, even though he wasn't doing it, doing kind of musical endeavors, even though he brought home tons of cool records for us to listen to. So that that was also something. something, That's what I wanted
2: to add to what Gary was saying, which is the other thing that's fabulous is we have so many people who say, where there was this site they saw, it was like they saw. Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And that was it. That changed everything. Everything's outside. You know, you, they'd be rebelled or whatever. But you guys had all this fabulous music and everything being brought to you by your parents. It was all coming from them. And your mum drove you to Vegas to see the Beatles. I mean, <laughs> you
5: know. That's right. No, uh, Across the uh, the Mojave Desert, in the if you had seen the car, it it logically shouldn't have made it all the way across the desert but but somehow we got there and uh, yeah, it was the second time she took us to see the beatles she also took us to the hollywood bowl when they played so we uh, seen them twice so uh, but that's what's what's
2: so nice is is like so so your entire musical career everything comes from a place of nurturing it's all being oh, nurtured yeah. for in yeah.
4: our our musical education isn't in some kind of formal context it's from listening to you know am radio and then and then records and all so so you know people kind of think of our music as being eclectic at times and that i don't know where that actually comes from but because our our original learning experience with music it you know not in a learning in a formal sense but kind of just being indoctrinated was was just rock music on the radio and, and records
1: I, I have four boys, Ron, and um, and I can see the, the sort of, how, when when a younger sibling comes along, the older one gets his nose put out a bit, <laughs> and, uh, and and some of them never forgive the younger sibling for coming <laughs> along, um, but you, you made an incredible connection with. I think your kid brothers like yeah. three years younger than you, right? Yeah. What was there a moment? Do you remember, Ron, when it was like, well, I guess he's in my life. And well, we're going to create only together. when,
4: when uh, it was a business partnership then, then, it, then we had to get along you know so so you know you, you never kind of consider those things until you realize that you're actually working with a brother and you know we're we're fortunate enough with within Sparks that our roles are so different from each other within the band that we don't mm-hmm. have the usual competitions that other bands with brothers might have.
2: It's pro- probably worth pointing out at this point. Sorry to interrupt, Gary, but this is about is that Gary is is like you in one of the rare successful no. brother partnerships.
4: No, right? No, no, no.
2: <laughs> in no. rock and roll, it's like yeah. you, the Kemps, and you two. You like the anti gallaghers no, or the anti Davises? No,
4: no, because it, it really is. It really is the uh, the exception because uh, I can understand. That sort of situation, but uh, we have a bond in that way.
2: We love each other so Well, can much. I can I say
1: can I can I say, can I, say I, I anally put my albums in alphabetical order, and uh, oh. and Spandau Ballet oh. sit right up close every spot. Every, every
4: time I go to Japan <laughs> and look through the the Tower Records bin and look for uh, selfishly for one of our albums, there I go, Spandau Ballet. So. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but of course, but 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 with your ridiculous output, you obviously dwarf the section that Gary takes no, up.
4: No, <laughs> uh, but he's he's uh, he's he's ahead of us. So. <laughs>
2: you talk about your relationship
1: together, and of course, famously, I think what made it so extraordinary at the beginning was this. You had, it was almost, it was it was perfect. We knew this story. Your relationship was a story so familiar to us. Here was Tigger and here was Eeyore, right? <laughs> yeah. That's that's how I think we saw you as kids. Uh, <laughs> and was this something you, I mean, listen, I don't want to blow the myth anywhere, but was it a natural thing for you to find those relationships? Or was this something you got from a movie?
5: You mean the- Well, you know, I mean- uh, seen on state yeah how we uh, yeah um,
1: i mean obviously sort of ron is the sort of you know sort of silent movie kind of not villain but uh
5: yeah well i mean it may not sound like it but it was pretty uncalculated the whole th- i mean i just did whatever i thought was you know trying to be cool like every front man <laughs> probably tries to be and, and then ron kind of wanted just went the opposite way where you know being a keyboard player it was hard to you know jump around and be cool you know with a with a keyboard and so he you know got his hair chopped off actually when we moved to the uk after a little while he had long bushy hair like i did but he got rid of it and slicked it back and uh and went kind of the opposite route but it was you know was not like we had a board meeting and said hey this is cool you'll be You'll be that kind of way and I'll be this kind of way. He just did it. And then it then it was really something that was so effective and striking on British TV because you know, close ups were were the thing. And so when they did close ups of Ron, oh, that was unforgettable. His, uh, natural inclination to, what, to scowl. what else? It's that side
2: <laughs> eye to camera. That's the absolute that's that's your definitive. That's your windmill.
4: Oh, exactly because yeah, <laughs> exactly. I always yeah. I always wanted to be Pete Townsend but I saw a,
2: you did that if any, with the violin did you? didn't you
4: oh yeah no that's that's yeah, right but that right. was yeah, well, you know a, a one off but yeah. I, right. I I really wanted to be Pete Townsend forever but as a Keyboard we, all player, do.
2: we all do we all do
4: well okay yeah but, <laughs> but uh, within the context of our original band everybody looked like a rock person in a general way and I I kind of wasn't carrying my load, and so I I just had to go a, a different direction. So you know, I mean, it's uh, it was frustrating because you know I just love the flashy bands all the time, but in a really kind of uh, bizarre way, just having close-ups where you where in a way you're doing something quite a bit less physical than a, a windmill. It kind of worked at that time,
1: And I also think some of your success being in the U- in the uk was because we understood humor in music the beatles always had it there was there were always you know their influence would have been the goons and 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 other you know on a review that was normal to have serious acts and comedy acts that your embrace of the of satirical stuff was well, so that, british that
4: was something that we felt very early on. We Before we moved to London, we had had two albums out and we played quite a bit at the Whiskey Gogo in Los Angeles for really small, very, very small audiences. And we would always play with bands that were, you know, thought that any kind of uh, humor in music or any kind of visual sense was something that was lessening of of kind of musical well, integrity. they were
2: all Laurel Canyon self reflective, oh, exactly. I guess. No, exactly, yeah, exactly.
4: You know, and so, so you know, it was it was difficult because there was that feeling, and so we did. I think you know, I mean, people want asked sometimes why, how come it happened in in the UK? But that is one thing I think that the acceptance of both humor in a song, but but not humor that's only humor but that kind of can have an under layer of serious tone to it mm-hmm. as well but all and then also visuals both in the sense of uh, what you're doing on stage and then album jackets and videos and all those sorts of things it doesn't oh, yeah. to us it only it's kind of all one thing
2: yeah as yeah. vince clark points out in in the movies that the, you know is that they, if everyone's honest you guys were the model for everyone for everyone <laughs> the fact that Moody keyboard player from, you know, that became everyone. That, that was, that was Yesu, that was Pet Shop Boys, that was, you know.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No comment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Russell, you know, I think you, yes. you can hear a lot of the chanteur right from the start in your voice. There's, there's the, the French singer, there's Europeanness about what you were doing right from the beginning. Where were you getting that? Or did you, was that just me? Is that just me noticing that?
5: French New Wave I mean, cinema. It's probably... French New Wave cinema? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a combination of all that, I suppose. I mean, one thing was just the way Ron wrote songs that kind of dictated the style, a lot of the, the actual singing, you know, it just coming up with a melody like way back then, this time beginning for both of us. You know, it's not a traditional melody and he wrote it on a keyboard and it was in that key and we didn't think of anything like well you can transpose something down we didn't even know that that existed uh, transposition you know at that time so he wrote it in that key you obviously you have to sing it in that key and so it was that that kind of singing but to that kind of song that wasn't really kind of a traditional pop melody or, or song, you know, a uh, structure even. And so a lot of the the style of what I do, I think, was dictated by that. Plus the fact that, you know, we like always gravitated towards bands that were kind of had some visual style and, and, and their live presentation. So I think combination of that with the style of the music just sort of shaped... My, uh, Talking of that, thing. so
2: you were saying how you like bands with the visuals, which is why you would have, you know, you slotted right in when you came to England in the mid 70s. Who were you hanging with then? Who, who were the people you were kind of relating to over here musically?
5: We, well, we weren't yet. hanging with with many many we I don't think we were hanging with anybody that's why <laughs> <laughs> we were in our own little world but I mean we yeah. we liked a lot of we wish we could have hung <laughs> with a lot of people but you know we we you know we really like you mentioned earlier you know Roxy music and them you know we we really love them love Brian for you know we we uh, cuz there was a you know some similarities in a, in the aesthetic, you know, not yep. specifically musically, but, you know, just an aesthetic that was sort of coming from a similar area. So we, you know, and plus, you know, we we loved all the, you know, obviously the T-Rex and yeah. and that ilk, uh, you know, a lot. And saw all, the, all those bands when they came to LA before we even moved here. So we were, you know, seeing all of those bands when they were, Uh, Fresh off the boat, you know, it was the first time Led Zeppelin had played in LA and, and, uh, you know, Pink Floyd, which you guys really, really early on. uh, So we were kind of being sort of brainwashed by those bands that we really, really liked. Yeah, because
1: it's not really a coincidence, is it? That that John Hewlett managed you at the beginning and john john was in um john's children which was mark boland's first band right and and they were an amazing group they're a kind of missing link between mod and and glam
5: yeah yeah and we 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 love that we love smashed blocks so it was like when it was uh when john had been introduced to us we you know we go oh my god it's the guy from John's children. It is John of John's children. <laughs> yeah. We were living our living out our uh, British fantasy. But it, the know. very fact that you start, you know, yeah. your
2: first album is with Todd Rundgren, which kind of maybe did, but with the arc of time, it's just the coolest place to start anywhere. And there's a great credential, which you know goes through everything. It's it's never not cool to have done an album with Todd Rundgren.
4: You know, no, no, but no, yeah. nobody else wanted to do an album with us. So you know, we we sent out the demos. Before the first album, to you know, at least twenty different record companies or producers, and Todd was the only one that responded. So, so I think you know you're right. I mean, he's we kind of chose him because we thought he looked cool, and you know, but just it turned out that the sensibilities really clicked in the in the studio.
5: And also, he he, we had made the the demo this demo that he with, with most of the songs that were that later became that first album we made, and he, he didn't want to change what we had done. He wanted to try to help us enhance it sonically, but as far as the actual way we we sounded, he didn't, he didn't want to tamper with that because he thought we had something really, a really great kind of naive spirit to what we were doing. And it wasn't one of the kind of producers said, okay, now guys, we need to get the hit single. You know, he, he, he didn't care about that. I mean, obviously he thought we were, we should have had more commercial success anyway, just based on what we were doing, but he wasn't the type that wanted to mess with the aesthetic. He just wanted to help it out a little sonically from our our reel-to-reel recorder that we had that had a lot of hiss on it.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend,
1: While we're on producers, you know, let's um, have uh, this compliment Muff Winwood. You know, because you know, Muff was actually he he signed Spandau Ballet to CBS in the mid eighties when we were leaving Chrysalis. and uh, obviously Muff is Steve Winwood's brother and played in the Spencer Davis Group, of course. Um, that, that song, you know, I mean, that's how brave that song was. You know, putting sound effects on, and you know, I'm talking about this town ain't big enough. It was, it was there were, you guys have given me two moments where I've heard a song in my life, and I could tell you the minute I the place I was and where I was and how it changed my life. Later on, we'll talk about number one song in heaven, but, but certainly that song this town ain't big enough. you know I remember it coming out, and we'd gone on a school trip, um, and we were going outside of London my whole year group, and that song had just come out, and it was endlessly played. On the record deck that was there, everybody was obsessed with that tune. <laughs> I
3: mean,
1: it's so visual as well. Sorry, oh, no, there are no, no questions in that. There's just I'm oh, just no. I I'm mean, just what, spewing Sparks fan.
5: But <laughs> what you mentioned about Muff, um, you know, and being a a brave soul that that really championed that song because they're you know he, they could have picked another song off of that album that maybe had a you know a chorus and a verse more normal structure something but he wanted to go with that one which is probably the most eccentric song on the album but he really believed there was something you know something to it and you know sometimes we would go you know we were kind of even the ones being cautious like oh that's a little bit risky huh and and you know and he was no gotta go for it guys you know and but, so, there's, uh, one little thing that's very
2: much i think feel a bit skirted over in the film which could have been seismic, which is how you didn't do top of the pops, the first top of the pops, um, uh, because you didn't have work permits, right? Now that could have been the end of it, yeah. right? That this, it, you make it money. If you were here, you were doing it up, you were doing all this stuff. You didn't have work permits. You could have been sent home right then. That that this whole story could no, just
5: was, you know have, have died. It was a, this this little oversight that no one had checked on. You know, we by the way, you know, and it was literally we were at. Top of the Pops getting ready to go on. And uh, the producer, you know, heard my twang and, uh, oh, where are you from? And I and said, Los Angeles, he says, hang on a minute. And, you know, and, the, and we were ousted from the show that time. But um, no one had kind of even thought of that issue. And then fortunately, we were later, for some odd reason, we uh, got into the musicians' union, the British Musicians' Union, a little bit later on a couple i don't know a couple of weeks later they somehow allowed us in and then they had us on top of the pops and then so but it was but too late began. to stop
2: the rubettes from going to number 1 with sugar baby love
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah damn it i don't know <laughs> yeah, they, they but we've been in, we've been in the british musicians union since 1974 and continue to be card holders so I, we're probably longer members of the union than practically well, anybody and but- that's it, british <laughs>
1: Did you have to do that, you know, ridiculous thing in those days? Uh, which we had to do it late in the 80s where you had to pretend yeah. to re-record the track yeah. for Top of the Pops. Yeah. And then swap. Yeah, you swap-
5: take, yeah, you, you take the, the guy out to the pub. They take him out to the pub while you're supposedly mixing and then he comes back from the pub and... He goes, wow, it sounds just like the record. And and you slip him the record. And in fact,
2: actually, I mean, um, this talent big enough for both of us is a great example of that, the sheer impossibility of remaking that in like in an hour.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, it was was sort of a a bizarre, uh, you know, thing they had making you re-record your song that, like you said, you you spent like, you know, hours and hours and hours doing it. And and in in 20 minutes, can you recreate what you've done?
1: Visconti must have been a cool producer to work with because obviously on the next album you you used him I mean obviously given his credentials with Bowie and T-Rex
5: he was also a a dream to work with and he's he's one of those the producers that's kind of got all of the bases covered because he's a an amazing musician himself and then he's an incredible engineer and then his taste in acts was you know right in line with our Taste so it was kind of this you know match made in heaven and he's a uh, and he's a cool he's a good guy so we uh, we still you know still in contact with him and uh, where did you now. record
1: that was that was that in Soho at the studio he was always using at that tried no we
5: were, we recorded at his
3: home you know? wow
5: yeah little tiny
3: studio yeah we were home.
5: we were fortunate enough
4: to yeah. work with him two times after that uh, once on an album we did a. Kind of re-recordings of some of ours called plagiarism, where he did just brilliant orchestrations, and then and then also again we became really close with the French band starting in 1989, uh, Le Rite Mitsuko, and by luck he was producing them, and and the band wanted to collaborate, you know, just on a couple of songs, so we we got to work with them uh, in three three different times.
2: Wow, this French thing keeps seeping back in, doesn't yeah, it?
4: It's funny. yeah, no, it's, it's a sort it... <laughs> of constant, constant
2: thread. And then, funny and also enormous in Germany, don't you? That's always that's always been a really strong place for you as well, hasn't it?
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was. Um, then we 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 had that one song. When do I get to sing my way? That just um, out of the blue, you know, it was like we were considered a brand new band again. But it was it was sort of um, Ten years after, like the whole "This Town" and "Come On to My House" period here in the UK, then all of a sudden in Germany there's a brand new band Sparks, and we had that song. So it's kind of odd that, that situations happen a few times where um, something just clicks in one area of the world, and it kind of s- slips under the radar in in a lot of other places. And then, uh, but because of what it is that we're doing and and all that people they kind of think, oh, it's a brand new band, yeah.
2: you know? Because also, I've got to say, because by the way, what a brilliant, brilliant song that was. When do I get to sing my way? And it's such a great thing. Were you, I mean, is because uh, were you kind of thinking Sinatra and
5: Vicious? Well, they're it's both, yeah, well, they're both, uh, The one line is, when do I get to sing my way? When do I get to sing, like, uh, like Sinatra. What, what do I say, Sinatra? And then when do I get to sing my way? When do I get to sing, like, Sid Vicious sang? You know, so it does, it mentions both of them. In
1: your writing, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, though, isn't there? As, you know, how do I get to Carnegie yeah. Hall? You know, practice, boy. You know, uh, you know, on the new album, seems like a very sad song about Veronica Lake. Mm. I can't, can't quite get my finger on it. Almost that, like, I feel like i have going to get Ron to explain that one to me. But, but also Mona Lisa. I mean, it seems that in this way of of taking icons, but the failure of icons. You know, that it's hard to reach what we really want to achieve. Seems to be a running theme, in yeah, in many yeah. of your Yeah, I mean, songs.
4: It, in the case of Veronica Lake on the new album, she was a like probably the biggest actress for a very short amount of time during World War II, and she had just an iconic hairstyle, a peekaboo hairstyle that was copied by by mm-hmm. women all over, over over the states. And but the women in the states at that time had to go to work in factories, and so. You know it, it sounds comical in a certain sense but it was tragic in another way where where their hair was getting caught in the machines they were working on and so the u.s yeah. government appealed to veronica lake who was so influential to all of these women to kind of do her hair in a different way which she she did and you know to me i i love i love veronica lake even though she had a very short career i think she was some somebody really special as an actress but she kind of lost her popularity and you know it's hard to know whether uh it was because of that or or like you know she was kind of self-destructive in some ways but Mm. and also i mean you mentioned the the mona lisa's packing leaving late tonight just uh it's a situation where the mona lisa hanging in the lube has just become disillusioned with this world and Wants to go to somewhere more ideal for her.
1: Well, I suppose it's hard to listen to your songs and not see something autobiographical in them. And there's a lot of your tunes which, where you feel that maybe you're the wrong guy. Yeah. That that somehow it's not. I wasn't meant to be here. That's the,
4: well. There, you know, there's we, we've, we've had our share of frustration. So maybe that's channeled sometimes in the in the songs. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, it to me. Uh, it's kind of not very interesting, uh, a successful uh, love affair, as much as one that's, that's kind of uh, has its uh, dark side to it.
1: We've got to move on to this track because, I mean, I found it uh, next snuggled uh. next to a Spandau <laughs> Ballet track. Here is yeah. my orange vinyl, Ooh. Beat the wow. Clock. Nice. Uh, you know, because this, Really was a huge influence on Spandau Ballet. Um, uh, I don't know if you know, but around that time, you know, we were going to, you know, there was a cl- famous club called the Blitz, and of course, Rusty Egan is in, is, it, yeah. is in your documentary, yeah. yeah. And and this track came out and went on. You know, this was a very refined playlist that he was choosing from. This was some Bowie, Roxy, and then it was, you know, Kraftwerk and Iggy, uh, but anything electronica coming out of Germany. This was life changing. This was real pop music that was intelligent, that had a throb to it, that we'd never heard before. It was one of the reasons that we bought a synthesizer. It was why the uh, first Spandau Ballet album was made. um, I mean, this was so influential on all of us. And Duran say the same, we all say the same
5: we need to talk about it. Thank yeah, that's amazing. No, that's 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 amazing to to hear. Cause we stories like that, we we yeah, we we don't get to hear them often but no, it's really cool. Really really cool. That's ironic because when that album was first made, you know, it, it the the public was so way ahead of critics at that time because critics kind of really slammed us in the, the British press because it was like we had been, a you know, in their mind, a, a rock band. And now we're working with synthesizers and a, and a disco producer, you know, Giorgio Moroder. And, and, and so they were, it was kind of at first seen as being, you know, blasphemous to the, the rock cause, but, but then three of the songs were really popular off of the album as, as singles. And then, like you mentioned, there was that, you know, whole club scene going on and, and with that song as well. And so it was, it, was, it was good proof that sometimes the public maybe knows more than, than some critics do about, about situations, you know, so it was. Uh, and, then, and then now since that album's kind of been reassessed and all of those critics are now long gone but that album still remains and then it's kind of been reassessed as to what it actually represents in a in a more positive oh, hang on, he's way. Bringing another one. I have it here. I mean There it is.
1: What what a, what a what an album. Number 1 song in heaven is
2: one of the great, great, great and uh, the fact that that collaboration came about through something which really could have blown up in your face, wasn't it? Which was a basically an empty boast to oh. a journalist. A lie. A lie.
5: What happened? Question. What happened? Yeah, well, we, we, uh, some journalist had said, so what, what's your next album going to be? And, and we had in our own minds, we really wanted to try to work with Georgia Marauder because we really loved, I feel love with Donna Summer that he had done, so we did this interview with a German journalist, and she and she asked what we were up to. We said, "Oh yeah, we're going to be working with Giorgio Moroder," and we had, you know, we had no clue about how to get a hold of Giorgio Moroder. And she said, "Oh really? He hadn't mentioned that to me, but I'm I'm really good friends with him." And we went, oh crap! So uh, then we we owned up. We said, "Well, we actually haven't yet contacted him, but we would like to work with him." And then she said oh, I can, of course I can introduce you to him. And she did. And then we got along really well with Giorgio and he, uh, you know, and it was all new for him too, because he had never worked with a band before. He'd only worked with solo artists like Donna Summer, where he could help to really mold the arts, even though obviously Donna Summer is a great singer and all of that and has her thing, but he could help shape, you know, the kind of the, the, the musical um, you know, backdrop for her. And so working with us, it was kind of an odd situation for him because we had the, this band sensibility and he was coming from this other kind of sensibility, but he really liked us too. So it was, everybody's kind of tiptoeing a little bit in the studio, not knowing what we were gonna come up with, but I think everybody was really motivated to just try to do something really fresh.
1: And was it a learning curve for you, Ron, as far oh, as synthesizers no. are concerned?
5: No, he,
4: he, you know, everything that we learned, you know, knew about synthesizers, it all comes from that one experience. I mean, just, just you know, we, we you know, I had played with an RMI piano, you know, in, in the UK, but I knew nothing about how you got that sound like from I Feel Love. So, so you know, we first walked into a studio in L.A. that Giorgio had worked in before. And there were just at that time, there were no portable synthesizer. It was all like just these banks of walls of red lights and all this sort of thing. And so, so Giorgio, you know, that, that exposure to what, to the knowledge that Giorgio had and the expertise in the electronic studio was, was all from him.
2: Did you did you find yourself going down that rabbit hole then getting into VCSOs and filters? And-
4: well, I never, you know, I've never even though I I've I'm I've fa- I've fascinated by the sound, but we've never been 100% purists as far as like, you know, having vintage gear and all. I mean, I have, you know, I have a few uh museum pieces in, in my place, but we like to work as quickly as we can and so if there's a plug-in now that approximates Something mm-hmm. and use within the right kind of context, then we're we're kind of fine with that. We don't we don't really have many uh, pieces of hardware in in the studio anymore.
1: Because I think some of the synth sounds on the new album, yeah, sound very period and a fantastic. You know, dirty sounds.
5: Yeah, most of it's coming just from uh, sound you know sound libraries that we have that have now. You can kind of. Have everything at your disposal in one laptop. Have vintage synthesizers, but then have full orchestras too. So it's it's pretty amazing time. For, uh, how for do you,
1: how do you you can you don't have to answer this question if it's you want it to be a remain a mystery. But I know Ron in the early days certainly was the key songwriter. But how how are the songs do the songs evolve for you now as writers? Well, really
4: in like two different ways. One of them is just in a more traditional way, where maybe I I come up with a song. I have like a small setup in my place, on a on a keyboard and singing in my style, and uh, and or also on an acoustic guitar, but the so and then bringing it to Russell's studio. But the other way is is kind of a more of a collaboration within the studio where we just start with nothing, and try to, you know, figure out, you know, just to take one sound or one kind of rhythm and figure out can something be built around this that has some kind of mm-hmm. song form and you know it's really helped you know me especially just where where i i having more than one way of writing is really liberating and i think it 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 leads to more variation with within what an album can be for us
2: i mean the fact that you just said on an acoustic guitar was suddenly <laughs> you know, like, because of, Vince <laughs> Clark yeah, is the same. Power. Vince writes everything on acoustic guitar. Uh, you know, so, but um, but it's but what's interesting for all of that is that one thing that's really clear from the film is that you've always actually been very much about a band about and you have this you know you you clearly very close with your musicians and you generate fantastic loyalty from your musicians. So you, you know you've you very much are like a band structure, don't you? When you
5: yeah, uh, I mean we 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 really like it. I mean we we also you know we're we like it the the group that we have you know is kind of younger guys that are you know they're all fans of the band but and come kind of without any a lot of baggage from the past like they're really just um they they don't even know some of you know a lot of the minutia from the past which is great they just they like what we what we do and so it's kind of um refreshing where it's not like session guys kind of in, in your band. It's more like, it is like, like a band, you know, and in, in the best sense, uh, of that. And, and, and kind of they're, they come, they're really, uh, not jaded by <laughs> all of the bad stuff that, that, you, that one can get jaded by in in, 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 in music.
1: We, um, we spoke earlier about your films and, um, and of course, we should also mention, um, The the seduction of Ingmar Bergman, which was a, which which you know took you into sort of slightly different art form almost. But is musical theatre going to be begging to see you make you know when are you going to make that musical? I mean, surely Annette could be a musical
5: on stage. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, I mean, it's there's a possibility that that could happen at, at some point, and we're you know we we would love for that to happen. I mean, right now we're kind of more focused on, you know, movie, doing, doing musicals for, for movies. We have a new oh. project that we finished called Excrucior. That's, um, we, the, the film company that produced, um, the Edgar Wright documentary, uh, asked if we had any, what we were up to. And so we told them, aha, we have a, uh, we have, have in fact another musical that we've been working on. And so, um, so we finished the screenplay and finished all the music for it. And so now we're just kind of uh, going to the next step and seeing who's going to be involved as a director. Amazing. You wrote
1: the story. You guys wrote the story.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's really different story, completely different s- story. But the sensibility of the whole thing is definitely from our sensibility. But um, without telling much of this, what the story is, it's a, it's a they've built it as a, an epic musical so we'll leave it at at that whatever that I I hate to say it
2: but I would have thought a great director for a film for you would be Edgar
5: well (laughs) who knows we we you know we we love Edgar and we're like really good friends now so we'll we'll, I should by the way I've got
2: one link here because I did the music for the thing that made it for his tv series Spaced yeah the, yeah the, yeah i, I did yeah. all the score oh, for that amazing so. oh oh, oh so I'm, yeah i'm very oh, biased no, I, I,
4: <laughs> I love that i love that i, I re- actually pretty recently i'd seen all his films I, I recently saw that there it, it was i thought it was i thought it was great
5: you also worked with george hankin right yeah well, your, george you produced your documentary
1: directed our documentary, Soul yeah, Boys of the Western yes. World. Yeah, she was wonderful. Lovely. Yeah, she's, she's great. Yeah. Um, your work ethic is incredible. I mean, 20 odd albums, 25, 26. What is it? I don't know how many. 26
2: now. 26,
1: 26. albums. Do you drive each other to that? Because is it is like Ron picking up the phone? Come on, Russell, we've got to do something. Or are you constantly looking to form, to create art? And on, It's it's unstoppable with you, whether it's the music or the
3: visuals.
5: I mean, it, there's nothing really ever spoken. Uh, it's all just kind of that's what we do, and you know, um, we'd be kind of lost without having that that to look forward to. I think you know. So we, you know, fortunately, we have this studio in my place, and and um, we work most of the time. You know, so it's not a it's not a thing of kind of even having to motivate the other person. You know, because we're both pretty driven as far as wanting to just be producing something you know you feel kind of naked if you don't have something in the in the works and something kind of to look forward to so that part of it's not so difficult has there
2: ever been a thought of doing something apart
5: well from my standpoint uh
4: no (laughs) Uh, because uh i i have my people don't have to know what you can't do and so there are quite a few things that i can't do in a musical kind of way so i'm uh i'm kind of this is kind of the only situation that i can be in in a musical thing
2: do you hear that russell yeah <laughs> got it right where you want him
1: russell
2: for you guys we were raise. <laughs>
1: we mentioned we mentioned um that 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 twenty shows you did, or whatever, yes. when you were doing every, a different album every night, we couldn't believe that there were musicians out there that could cope with that workload. How did that work? Yeah, well,
5: we we don't suggest ever trying it if you even have twenty-one albums ever as a band. We don't suggest it because it's a it's a harrowing experience. It, we we rehearsed for four months for that, and just the having to retain all of that material it's uh it's not fun uh but we're happy you know we're we're happy we did it but we did you rehearse them in
2: order in chronological order
5: because so that means for your first show you're playing an album that was
2: you learned 21 albums
4: ago
5: (laughs) no, no and and also by the time if you start in chronological order for the rehearsals by the time you get to the album number 15 you've already forgotten what you've done on album number one so it's like we're talking about my album 3 you've forgotten what you did yeah yeah, yeah, well that exactly we would (laughs) rehearse
4: our own you know you try to erase the last night show in in your mind and and just start and start rehearsing that particular show on your own in your hotel room before before each night It, it, it also became some Really weird sequencing where we were, we played them in the sequence that they were on the album. So, like for Kimono My House, the opening song of the set was This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us, where it might not be in a normal show.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what about talking about rehearsals? Is that what you've been in at the moment? Have you been in rehearsals with the band? Or or are you about to Yeah, we
5: we rehearsed in LA for a week before coming over here. And then actually, this weekend, we'll, uh, start to do the more uh the, the production rehearsals with you know with lights and all of that kind of thing but for a couple of days here and then we start uh next week at glastonbury we will be at glastonbury what stage yeah. you on it's the pyramid it. it's got to I, be I, I don't even yeah. know what it's called
4: i mean it's going to be phenomenal
2: when did you start the running dance
4: well i i would have to say that dates back into the from the 80s and i've uh, I've tried to kind of ease that out of my repertoire, but my my audience won't allow it. So I uh, <laughs> quite right. Uh,
2: and so also
1: you you're you're going to end up at the Hollywood Bowl, right? Yeah. Is that your yeah. first headline there? Yeah. That, this a, ba- this a, band a, is going somewhere, right? It's building.
5: Yeah, <laughs> we're yeah we're building. We're on the on the way up. Uh, any new record labels? So check out this band. They're pretty hot it's a real treat. You know, we, you know, it's the, the most iconic place you can play probably in, in Los Angeles. And so, and since we're from LA, uh, you know, just to get to play there and headline at the, the Hollywood Bowl is like a real, it's a dream sort of. So it's, it's actually the last show to, uh, well, then we go to Japan after that, but it's the last, it's after all of Europe and after North America and it's the final show there. So it'll be a, real
1: because funnily enough talking about being anglophiles you know you actually broke america in a similar way to all the brits in that's in that second invasion in the 80s with k-rock and richard blade
5: yeah 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 richard uh is and he's still uh, over there doing his uh first wave on sirius uh yeah XM. yeah yeah no he's he's amazing you know, k-rock was amazing especially in the the 80s uh you know it was a whole whole uh Ecosystem going on there. Incredible. Listen, thank you so oh, much, it's, guys, it's, for, for coming
2: on. It's really good. No, it's really, really, really good to Thank both. you very yeah. much. And an absolute joy for yeah. us. It's like a real box tick to talk to because it's, you know, lifelong fans. So good luck well, with the
1: well, tour. Good luck so with the lot. album. The album's really amazing. And thank you. Thank
5: you so much. It's really a pleasure speaking with you both. All oh, the best. That Take care. Bye bye. Yeah.
1: And you know what? I've got a soft spot for Ron,
5: I think. Yeah, that was
2: that was coming across. No, uh, it's just
5: you know he
1: did admit no, to finding my records in the in the uh, in the record store. That was that was brilliant.
2: Yeah, no, I mean they're just. Can we only interview people who start SP you
1: know? <laughs> specials and
2: yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah? You know, it's their
1: vitality, isn't it? You know what we find, we get people on of all genera. You know, Ian Hunter who was eighty four. You know the vitality and the punk of that man they're still yeah. making records you know i think i think we're on 77 or something now you know still doing
2: it still sounding the most modern
1: people out there
2: but maintaining so that fantastically arch yeah are on you know they haven't they haven't mellowed you know yeah
1: yeah um thank you to our producer ben jones from gimme sugar for recording this and um who else we have to thank guy?
2: our listeners our guy. listeners our
1: listeners especially those who have signed up for the extras that we are now putting out there as well.
2: Do we go? Are we able to start doing the British Airways thing of? Uh, we'd like to welcome you on board, especially. <laughs> I've never had that. Have you had an especially Guy Pratt? No, 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 no. Especially our sort of club members. Oh, I see. All right. And uh, now, and of course, next week is going to be our live, our first live show. Yes.
1: No, we're going to we're going to be uh, putting out as our podcast will be the recording from the Screen and the Green, which we did this week. Uh, and thoroughly enjoyed, and um, you can get to actually hear it and download it um, as of next Sunday,
2: and it will be fantastic. And what's fantastic is the whole condition of this is it means that Gary is never ever allowed to mention it ever again. Sex pistol, screen of the Green. I was there. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> All right. It's good night from me, and good night from them.
3: Rock Hunters is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK.